When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 506th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most significant filmmakers of the last 50 years. His credits include classic narrative films like 1984's Paris, Texas, which won the Cannes Film Festival's Palme d'Or and brought him a Best Director BAFTA Award, and 1987's Wings of Desire, for which he won Cannes' Best Director Prize, as well as documentary films such as 1999's Buena Vista Social Club, 2011's Pina, and 2014's Salt of the Earth, each of which brought him Best Documentary Feature Oscar nominations. And now, at the age of 78, he is out with two new films, one a narrative, Neon's Perfect Days, the story of a Tokyo toilet cleaner for which Koji Yakusho won the Best Actor Prize at this year's Cannes Film Festival, and the other a 3D doc, Janice Films's Anselm, about the art of the German painter and sculptor Anselm Kiefer. The recipient of the Berlin International Film Festival's Honorary Golden Bear in 2015 and the Telluride Film Festival's Silver Medallion Award this year, he has been described by The Guardian as one of the key figures, along with Fassbinder, Herzog, and Schlundorf, of the new German cinema movement that reinvigorated West German film in the 70s and gave the country of Marlene Dietrich, Ufa, and F.W. Murnau a bona fide cinematic movement to rival the Nouvelle Vague, by the New York Times as a film visionary and a great hero of art film audiences everywhere, and by Turner Classic Movies as one of his generation's most appreciated independent filmmakers. Vim Vendors. Over the course of our conversation at the Toronto offices of Elevation Pictures, the Canadian production and distribution company, the 78-year-old and I discussed his circuitous path to filmmaking and the challenges of forging a career as a filmmaker in Germany back when he was starting out, what led him to America for a number of years and then back to Germany, why he moves between narrative and documentary films as often as any filmmaker except perhaps Martin Scorsese, and why he is particularly committed to making 3D docs, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Reynolds, thanks so much for doing this. Great to have you on the podcast. And to begin with, just for anyone who may be living under a rock and doesn't know, can you share where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living? So I'm Wim Wenders, and I was born in Germany right after the Second World War in August 45, in a fateful week for the Japanese people. Grew up in post-war Germany, wanted to become a painter, First studied philosophy and medicine, but then really drew up the courage to go fully for painting. And cocky as I was, I went to Paris thinking that's where you become a painter. And instead of becoming a painter in Paris, I became a filmmaker because I went to, I discovered the Cinematheque and that you can see the entire movies of the entire world. And every screening was for 25 cents. So I saw about a thousand movies in the course of a year, and after that it was decided. It wasn't painting, it was movies. Right. Now, just to go backwards for a moment, though, you've spoken about sort of this sense of uh, growing up in Germany after the war, there were a lot of secrets, a lot of darkness uh, that you, uh, unanswered questions. And you've talked about um, your parents having, I guess, uh, photos um, that really kind of maybe opened your mind to the world beyond 
where you were from. Can you talk about that? Well, when I was a little boy and I started school, the grown-up world was very, very busy, reconstructing the country and looking forward to the future. And it was all positive and beautiful. And you realize even as a boy, there's something wrong. Why isn't the past ever a subject? And why does nobody look over their shoulders? And eventually you realize all that building and all that effort to rebuild the future was in order to as fast as possible forget about the past and when i saw pictures from the past also family pictures there were all these uniforms and i mean my father was a doctor in second world war and as soon as he finished his studies he they threw him to the front and he was a surgeon and for four years he did do anything but put people back together and uh, so i realized there was a bloody story And uh, then I realized even more about the German past before. And it slowly dawned on me that it wasn't the best place. And, and the culture then had a bad taste for me. And I started discovering another culture. And I liked it so much better. I liked the comic strips and the rock and roll music. And, and everything American became my what I discovered for myself, my surrogate culture. And I just sucked it up. And I loved the jukeboxes. And I loved my... Disney comics and the superheroes. And when I started reading, my favorite books was right away Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. And I totally identified with the place where that was all from. Everything I liked was from America. That was a better country. Now, there were also some people in America doing things that I think open your eyes to possibilities, right? Because when we talk about Andy Warhol, Stan Brackage, these are people who had been photographers who then suddenly are making films. Was that the thing that in your mind said, you didn't study film, right? This was just, was that sort of the inspiration? It was discovering that painters who I liked a lot, like Warhol, Michael Snow, Stan Brackish, that these people started to make movies, 60-meter cameras mostly, and I realized they understood movies as a different and cameras as a different tool to continue painting with other means. And I thought that was very logical. And uh, Andy Wall owes a lot to the fact that I sold my saxophone and bought myself a 60mm second-hand camera. And those were my great heroes. It was the so-called American underground. But then I also got to know the history of movies and the real history of the real movies in the 20s. And I, in Paris, discovered even the German oh. cinema of mm -hmm. the 20s that... In Germany, I'd never even heard of. So I slowly discovered the entire history of cinema and realized that was my world. And everything I ever wanted to be, musician and writer and photographer and painter and architect, it was all in the movies and it was all wrapped into one. Starting, I think, with your graduate project, Somewhere in the City in 1970, you and Robbie Mueller worked very closely together as your cinematographer. How did that begin? Just because it was such a long and important relationship, it seems like, for you. For 10 years, we did everything together, and we did 10 films. We did a film every year together. Unbelievable today that a young filmmaker could make a film once a year. Totally. But at the time, it was possible, and Fassbinder even made four a year. And Robbie, I discovered when I was still in film school, Oh, I didn't learn much. It was not a great school. They didn't even really know yet how to teach cinema. But, you know, to make some money, I became a, an extra on a movie by an American director shot in Munich. And, and as I had very long hair and looked like Jimi Hendrix, I was cast as a left student, a revolutionary student. I even had some dialogue. It was the first time I was in a real movie set. And I was interested how these all happened, and I watched the camera work with a famous Dutch cameraman, and his assistant was very cool. His assistant was Robbie Müller, and I watched him, and he was pulling focus, and I realized he could pull focus with one hand and with the other hand roll his cigarette. <laughs> and that was what impressed me. And I went to him when he was had a moment. I said, Robbie, your name is Robbie, right? I'm a film student, and I'm eventually going to make my first film. Can we do it together? And Robbie looked at me and said, he never made a movie. He's assistant. And I said, well, why are you assistant? You're assistant to make movies. So let's do it together. So that was in 1970. And then I guess the... 69. Actually. 69 when you made it, right. Yeah. Was the first one that sort of brought you international attention? Would that have been the goalkeeper's fair of the penalty? That would have been a couple years later? 
It wasn't really international attention. It went. It was the film first film that went to a festival. It was in Venice and got the Critics Award, mm-hmm. but it didn't really get any release international. It had a couple of couple of reviews, but it got me to New York. And Goli's Anxiety played at the first new director season that the MoMA organized, and it was part of the first 10 movies. So the first interview I ever gave in my life was in New York. Was in, invited. It was the first time I ever got to, uh, actually got to America. Mm. And on the first day I was interviewed and the name of the guy was Vincent Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was normal. What did I know? <laughs> so we had a great talk and I felt very happy afterwards and I felt wow this is how interviews go and realized that it was downhill from then <laughs> <laughs> well I guess the other kind of legacy of goalkeeper was Rudiger Vogler right because for the next what what now we talk about as the road trilogy I, I don't know if you embarked on it thinking it would be multiple films no. but um he was he was your guy how did how did he enter the picture well, the Road Trilogy was called Road Trilogy by distributors, or maybe critics, what do I know? I just shot one film a year, and the guy I liked most in Goalkeeper's Fear of the Penalty had a small part. He was the village idiot. He didn't even have dialogue. But we got along really well, and I realized that was the kind of actor I liked. Didn't do much. In a strange way, he was more like American actors than the other actors in the film. He was very physical, and I liked him. And I took him on the next picture which was Scarlet Letter and then he also played a small part and I didn't like the experience to begin with and I realized I had no talent for period movies so then in the next movie where I thought I really have to do something that is my very own and not do something based on other movies like The Golden Anxiety was clearly based on Hitchcock yeah it was Hitchcock without any story (laughs) it was Hitchcock without the tension and the next one, Scarlet Letter, was a historic movie, and it was David Lean for Poor. And then I realized, and my first stud- student film, Summer in the City, was very much influenced by John Cassavetes. Mm-hmm. And I realized I can't go on like this, making movies along models of movies. So I have to do something that has no predecessor, and that is just coming from my own. And I put everything onto one card, and that became Alice in the Cities, and I thought that if I didn't manage to make a film that was really my own handwriting, I'd better go back to painting anyway. And that became Rudiger's first part, and he finally got a name, and he his name was Philip Winter for the next five movies. <laughs> so, with Alice in the Cities, which comes out in 74, did you see this character, a German photo journalist we could say right as who's interested in exploring america is this a surrogate for yourself or or did it is that how it began that's how it began and he certainly played a character that i knew a lot about rudiger himself was always angry when journalists called him my alter ego because he said i'm playing a part i'm not just it was alter ego so his ego was hurt by being an alter ego but <laughs> in the end the parts he played especially in the beginning after Alice in the Cities he played a writer in Wrong Move and then he played a truck driver in Kings of the Road so it was all aspects of me somehow but then again I also became freer and I did recognize he was a great actor and it became more fictional than let's say Alice in the Cities was really me yeah yeah now you you shook your head no when I asked you if the plan had been all along to to make multiple films on the road. So I I guess was it because you enjoyed the experience of making a film that way? I think you've said you shot Alice chronologically, meaning you took this trip again with your characters. But was it because Alice did well that we then got Wrong Move and Kings of the Road, or? No, Alice was just finally, I discovered a way to make movies that corresponded to me. I realized you couldn't make movies on the road and you could travel and film. And and I felt like a fish in the water compared to the previous movies that were all shot out of continuity, like movies go. Yeah. And discovering continuity and 
discovering that the road would become the story or the itinerary is part of the story. That was really a big discovery. I mean, I'd seen road movies and even as a, I was film critic when I was a student and even in my first years I wrote a lot about other movies. I knew Easy Rider and stuff. I knew road movies and I knew other ones in history of cinema, but I discovered them as my... Uh, something that was very close to me and that would work really well for me and that allowed me to sh to invent the story as I went along and Alice in the Cities, we had a script but after the first day of shooting I never looked at it again <laughs> and we just rewrote the whole thing from one day to the next and as that became something that I was good at and that I enjoyed so much I didn't want to ruin a good thing and the next two movies were also road movies and it just felt good to explore that and then I realized I couldn't continue that I, I would reduce myself if I just looked at filmmaking it in one particular aspect and so with the next film with American Friend I took a novel and it was no longer a road movie it was really a thriller of some sort and I, I will note though that somewhere along the line I think you called your production company road movies right yeah since 1974 wow and they still exist wow so As your profile was growing with these early films um, and people are starting to talk about new German cinema, uh, were you, you know, there's Fassbender, there's Herzog, there's Schlondorf. Are you, did you all know each other? Were you friends? Were you competitive? Uh, what was that dynamic like for you? We were all good friends because without each other's support, none of us would have made movies. We started making movies at the same time, Schlondorf a little earlier than us, but in a country that had no structure for us and that had no financing for us and that had no distribution for us and had no respect for what we were, do, we were doing. We were the, the young, wild ones, so to speak, and distributors didn't want us, so producers didn't want us. So we started founding our own company, the Verlag der Autoren, the, the author's company, and we produced our own movies. And being 15... We were able to raise the funding because not as single people, we couldn't raise any funding. But the 15 of us were sort of powerful and we managed to each time guarantee for the one who was shooting and all stood behind it. And then when we had the first movies, we realized it wasn't good enough to just produce. We had to also distribute them because nobody wanted to show them. So our company also became a distribution company. It was built on mutual solidarity and we were never competitors because... There was no film culture left in our country and we all started, each of us, with his or her own culture. And mine, well, mine was American cinema and Western. And Rainer Werner was very infatuated with melodramas, American melodramas. wasn't really my cup of tea, but I thought he took, he took that into a whole new realm. Herzog was very much dedicated to German expressionists and, and he was an adventurer to begin with and, and always did things that nobody thought anybody could do. And we watched each other's movies. And I remember late one night, I was already sleeping, it was after midnight, telephone rang, it was Rainer Werner. He said, Wim, you have to come. I just got a projectionist here at the museum theater and he's going to stay longer and show my rough cut. Yeah, just get up and come. <laughs> And when I got there, everybody else was already there, a little tired, but that's how it worked. And that was the marriage of Maria Brown. And mm -hmm. I realized Werner had made a masterpiece. And we all said so. And we acknowledged it. And we weren't competitors. We needed each other to turn our, our fates into something profitable. And I, I read that it really hit you pretty hard when he, I think, at just 37 passed away yeah he had just participated in a little documentary i had made in Cannes, room 666 and, mm -hmm. and Werner was in it and a few months later i remember i had taken a night train from paris and i came out of the station in munich and all the headlines of the newspapers were that Werner was dead and i just sat there and wept because i couldn't believe all the movies that he was not going to make anymore and all the actors that depended on him and this whole, I mean, he had this whole gang and he, they produced one movie after another and, and I realized how they would all feel and what we were all missing from then on. So we were good friends. Yeah. Now, around that same time, you'd been through a bit of a ordeal, I believe, where, you know, you'd had all these acclaimed films in Germany. Now, 
Coppola says, do you want to make, make a film in America? And I believe you were enamored with Hammett for a long time, uh, Dashiell Hammett, because hadn't that been the reason you'd gone to Montana at one point, right? So now you get a chance, you're going to make a, uh, a, a film in America, but it was not the experience you hoped for? Well, he liked the American friend and thought I was the guy who could shoot that film called Hammett after a fictional mo- novel by Joe Gorge on a phase in Hammond's life when he was still working as a Pinkerton but already started writing and I knew that life of Hammond's and I knew his stories and I knew all the Pinkerton, all the continental op stories and I thought, how good can it get? I can make a movie in America and even on Hammond. And I loved Francis and Francis had just come back from the jungle and apocalypse now and was in bad shape and then had to edit and he didn't pay much attention to what I was doing and Finally, I shot the film on location in San Francisco. Francis never came to the set because he was in his own editing room. And eventually, I mean, I thought I was hired to do what I knew best. So I applied the same method, like on all my movies before, and especially on The American Friend, when even if it was based on a novel, I had changed a lot in the course of the shooting. I added characters and did a lot. And we did the same with Hammett, who had a great cast. And... I invented a couple of new characters and we changed the story and eventually we were just about ready and we just had to do the final scene and for two or three days. And that's when somebody told Francis Bim is shooting already, he's done and he's shooting the last scene, but you have to know it's not at all like it was in the script that you know. And Francis read the scene and said, wait a minute, what is this? I don't recognize any of these people. And uh, and then we talked, and Francis said, hey, couldn't very well be that this is fine, but give me a chance. You can shoot that scene, but please first edit the movie so I can see it and see if that is a film that the studio wanted, because Francis produced it with American Zoetrope for Orion. Mm -hmm. And Francis was scared that maybe that film that I was doing was not what Orion had wanted. And he figured that Orion had certainly wanted the a share of action in it and from what I told him he realized I had gone more for Hammett the writer than for Hammett the the action man (laughs) because Hammett was suffering from tuberculosis and he wasn't much of an action man anyway (laughs) so anyway I interrupted the shoot and didn't shoot the last scene and for a few months I edited the film and when I showed it to him he showed it to the studio and exactly as he had foreseen they said it's not enough action it's too slow and we want to infuse it with more action so Francis hired another writer to put that action into it and the writer wrote more and more action in the end he written a whole new script and not much had survived of my film and we had to shoot it three years later because Francis was doing One from the Heart and Fred Forrest my actor was in One from the Heart and had become fat for One from the Heart <laughs> and as Hammett he had been skinny right. so when he was skinny again three years had <laughs> Or at least two years had happened, and I shot the film again one more time, not in San Francisco, but in, on stage in Los Angeles. And except for Fred Forrest and me, nobody from the first shoot was there anymore. It was a whole different ball game, and it wasn't exactly my strength to shoot in a studio. I, I really depend on shooting in locations, and we shot it in f- four weeks, all of it, on one stage. But you see, Francis and I remained friends through the whole thing and we respected each other and I realized he could have just as well have fired me when I had sort of misunderstood my mission and just worked the way I used to because nobody said anything they let me shoot and Francis wasn't there too so the second shoot he was there he always had a video monitor and saw everything was shooting and he was almost he was by then editing one from the heart so, and then we finished the film, but it was neither Francis's nor the studio's nor mine. It was some sort of in-between thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't really look at it as a success, and it wasn't commercially successful. And and I realized I was only good if I was in control of the budget, and if, like I had done on all my movies before, mm-hmm. and if I was my own producer. And I'd rather continue in that flow. And it was not really, it was not, my profession to be working for the studios as a hired hand and I still remained friends with Francis and Francis came and see some of my films when I continued mm-hmm. and we looked at it as a enormous lesson in our lives and uh, I then produ- went and produced Paris, Texas on my own turf 
And all the people that I couldn't bring into Hammett, Sam Shepard, who I so much wanted to become the lead and play Hammett, and he would have been perfect. I wrote the script with him, and Robbie Miller was back. He couldn't shoot Hammett because he wasn't Union. And I had wanted to do the score for Hammett with Ray Kuda, and the, the studio had said, no, we don't need a guitarist, we need a composer. And finally, Ray could show that he was a composer as well. So all the people I wanted to work with for a long time, and I was back on my own turf and on my own rules, and we did Paris, Texas. But I could not have done it without the detour of Hammett and, and State of Things, which was a movie I did in between the yeah. two shoots of Hammett. So... so America was an enormous lesson for me, and I loved working there, and I did shoot afterwards quite a number of movies in location, on location in America. But it is really interesting what you say, that there couldn't have been Paris, Texas without that uh, Hammett experience. And I, I, of course, have to ask you about Paris, Texas, because it seems like there, at least for American independent film, there's sort of a before and after Paris, Texas. It really shook things up, and I... I guess just first of all with the with the story, this idea of a guy coming out of the desert looking for a stolen woman. You had, as you mentioned, seen all of these great classic movies when you were in France. Um, and I know in Telluride you spoke about the fact that many of you were particularly taken with Anthony Mann. But I know that, you know, maybe Westerns in general or even... The Searchers specifically, is there? Is it just a coincidence that there are similar threads, or was that a movie that meant a lot to you when you were thinking about Paris, Texas? Searchers was an enormous inf- impact. Actually, in the movie that I did, in between set of things, the actor once drives by the New Art Theater in Los Angeles, and they're putting on the they're putting the Searchers onto the billboard up there. So Searchers was a huge influence and. But then again, for Paris, Texas, as we were going to shoot it in the West, and it was contemporary, not a Western, but a contemporary film in the West, I had a huge task in getting rid of all the models I had in my head of of movies shot in the American West and wanted to make it without any of these models and without the entrance of John Ford and Anthony Mann and all the other great directors. So I tried hard to, to invent my own way of shooting in the West and went on a long journey of taking photos just in order to get used to the colors of the West, those incredible Kodachrome colors and the emptiness of the landscape, and and was then ready to shoot Paris, Texas without, um, without a model in my hand. And it's interesting because if, if it had been a studio film, for instance, which obviously it, it wouldn't have been, but if it had... I'm sure they would have raised issues about Harry Dean Stanton playing a lead or uh, Anastasia Kinski, who you'd worked with on Wrong Move. Like, just it was really you getting to be your truest self. Is that a fair way to look at it? That's exactly right. I was really so happy to to be let loose again and be my own master. We didn't have a lot of money. Actually, we lost a lot of money in the course of the movie because the dollar went skyrocketing against. The years in the film, they're against the German currencies, and the film was entirely financed in Germany and France. We lost a lot, half of our budget. In the and we was it was of course non-union, and actually a lot of my crew was working on tourist visa, which was of course an absolute no-no, and I hope nobody would discover. But we were just in El Paso on the way. We shot it chronologically. Harry D- Walt had tr- found his brother, and the, the the two men were driving up back up to Los Angeles and we were in El Paso and one morning these two black limousines arrived on the little on our little compound where all our cars and our cameras and our trucks we had just had two trucks two limos arrived and the producer became pale and looked at me and said oh oh and nobody got out of the limos and he said I have to go in and he stayed in one of the limos for two hours. And then he came back and said, well, I had, it was a long negotiation. They were Teamsters. And they know that we are not, that we're on tourist visa. Some of us, not me, but I was through Hammett, Director's Guild and everything. Mm-hmm. But some of my crew, Claire Denis, and some of my crew were just on tourist visa. And they, they could pull the whistle on us and blow the whistle on us, and we have to stop the production. But they suggested if we hired 10 of them, they wouldn't say anything. And we just have to now add the movie 
had a crew of 20 with 10 drivers. <laughs> wow. We had to do that, and you imagine how much money yeah. is disappearing because they made us as much as my DOP. So, but we realized it was our only way of survival. They yeah. could just as well end the movie. And in the end, we were happy and even thankful. And they went with us to the end, went to Los Angeles and came back to Texas because the, we did the whole thing in chronological order, as that was my own rule. We started in Texas and went to California and drove back to Texas and ended it there. So we were then... We had then 10, ten Teamsters. Wow. And it cost it costed us two weeks of shooting in order to make up for it. So from six, we went to four weeks of shooting. But it was still a great experience. And you're right. Paris, Texas was an example for what then became American independence because it wasn't really such a model as an independent film. And Paris, Texas was quite influential for a lot of people that there was a very different way to make movies. Obviously not on tourist visa, but... <laughs> But I mean, yeah, the uh, Jarmouches and people like that uh, of the world were, I think a lot of people say how indebted they are to you. I wonder when that film, when you finished it and before it went out to the world, did you anticipate the kind of reaction it would get? And and then we should know. I mean, I guess the first place it went out to the world was Cannes. You win the Palm d'Or. Uh, and you have said that that was actually in a weird way, not a good thing. So what, just if you could talk about the way the film was received and then what, why it was complicated for you in the aftermath. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Well, none of us really sh showed the film. I came to Cannes with the very first print. It was still wet from the lab, and I had flown with the print to Paris. We had subtitled, put the subtitles overnight. I took the next train, overnight train from Paris to Cannes. I arrived in the morning of the press screening with the fresh and only print, subtitled print. Nobody had ever seen it. It was just completely un unknown. And I went on a long walk on during the press screening because I was scared as hell. <laughs> and then when it ended, my press attaché from the French distributor said, well, we're on to something good because people were just blown away by that. And then it did go on to win the Palme d'Or and of course it propelled the film into another dimension in my career as well because it came out all over the world. In Russia alone, they printed 3,000 prints of them, and so on. So it was all of a sudden a whole different ballgame filmmaking. And, and I didn't live it while well. I r realized that everybody now wanted another film just like it. All the distributors, they were, loved it, and they made good business with it. And they said, well, I hope you have something in the pipeline just like it. Which isn't the last thing you probably wanted to do. No, I didn't. And it took me three years. For the first time, I really didn't do anything for three years and in order to survive that onslaught. And then I did the very, very opposite. I mean, Wings of Desire was as remote from Paris, Texas, as it could be. It was a black and white film. It was in German. It was quite esoteric. I figured these guardian angels, and I thought they'd crucify me in Cannes, but... I liked it too, and that showed me that sticking to my own gun was the only possible answer to answer to expectations. Absolutely, it was another big lesson. Now, the idea, though, that you were going back to Germany to do Wings of Desire was that I know you're saying you wanted to do the opposite of Paris, Texas, but was this also just sort of missing home a little bit? When I did Paris, Texas, it was my seventh year in America since '78. And uh, I realized I was starting to dream in English, and uh, and I didn't want that to happen. And and even if I spoke to my parents or my brother, I had English words in my conversation. I mean, like any people who live long, so to speak, in a foreign country or in exile. I mean, I wasn't in exile. I was there on my own free will. Mm -hmm. But And I loved America, but I also realized I was about to lose something. 
And I didn't want to lose it. And I didn't want to lose especially my own language. And so I figured be good if I made my next film back in Germany and, and if I was expressing myself in my own language again. And that became then after a long pause in between and a lot of traveling. I traveled for two years after Paris, Texas, all across the world. Not with a movie, but just trying to find out what I would do. And I had the first the first idea of Until the End of the World and I ex explored it and I wrote some of it. Actually, I had started until the end of the world when Francis Ford Coppola in 77 or in early 78 called me from San Francisco and he found me through a mutual friend who lived in Sydney in the desert in Australia. And I was developing until the end of the world. It was I was writing the script mm -hmm. and Francis told me, would you like to come to San Francisco to talk about a film called Hammett? And I said, great, I'll come. And then I figured... Once that is done, I come back to Australia and I continue until the end of the world. But then it became a four-year adventure and then I had to sort of exercise the whole thing and do Paris, Texas. And then I went back to Australia and traveled extensively across the world to develop this longest road movie ever done right. until the end of the world. And then I, it was too early, I realized that I couldn't get a budget for a science fiction film together. And, and then I went back to my own city of Berlin and realized my office was still there and there are people working for me and they hadn't <laughs> made a movie for three years and they were kind of desperate. Well, so just because you had mentioned her a moment ago, I have to ask, how did you and Claire Denis begin working with each other? I was preparing Paris, Texas without a first assistant, just with the American production um, manager and uh, it was a French-German co-production. And according to the French-German co-production laws, I needed a certain amount of French personnel on the shoot. Robbie wasn't French already. And so I hired, I, I said, well, what can I do? And and I was dedicated to do the soundtrack with Ray Cooter. And the cast was an American. And in order to get the funding for German-French co-production in America, I had to have French crew. And then my French co-producer said, well, you need to hire a French assistant. And I said, well, how is a French assistant going to help me here out in the West? <laughs> and uh, and then I said, well, we sent you somebody. And trust us, we'll find somebody who can really help you. And uh, I said, okay. I mean, I would very much like to have an American first assistant <laughs> out here, but if this is the condition to get the funding, well, send that person. And yeah. Eventually, I went to Houston Airport, and this little French woman stepped out of the plane. Tiny, blonde, tiny, very small, fragile. And my first impression was, how the hell is she going to help me? <laughs> how is this going to work? She's never been out here. Right. But she spoke decent English, and, and before I knew it, she turned out to be a workhorse and was incredible energy and she ran the set with great authority and in the end was the best assistant I ever had and we went on making Wings of Desire afterwards as well so she was a dream come true as an assistant but my first impression was oh god <laughs> now the one thing about Wings of Desire that I'm a little a little confused about is you say you had these years off after Paris Texas before Wings of Desire but then when you started Wings of Desire once you decided to do it, it seems like it was a mad rush to get going. You've said you started it, I think, without a script, without storyboards, without costumes, without basically anything. So what was that about? Well, it all started basically as a desire to make a film in Berlin. When I rediscovered Berlin after seven years in America and then traveling through the world for another two years, and I resettled in Berlin and I rediscovered my own city and really also dived into my own German language. I had nothing but the city and a desire to explore it as much as possible. And I didn't even have characters. I came without a story. It, the desire was to make a movie in Berlin and that was all I had. <laughs> and I really explored Berlin extensively and took a lot of photos. In, in the end, knew all the places where I was going to shoot, except they didn't let me shoot in East Berlin. Mm -hmm. I gave it a huge try, but it didn't, it didn't mm -hmm. work out. There was no chance I could make a movie without a script in East Berlin, or largely unscripted. But then, but then 
mainly through the city itself and all the angel figures everywhere in the city and by nightly reading Rilke, which is populated by angels, I slowly realized my characters were going to be these guardian angels. I had explored other possibilities because I needed people who would get around the city and to, to give it to really show the city at its widest. And then I realized these guardian angels gave me incredible chances to really look at the city because mm -hmm. they were invisible. And I took on that task and I actually made an effort to write a script and went to Salzburg to talk to my friend Peter Hanke and told him the story. And after I told him the story for half an hour, he shook his hand and said, I can't help you with that. That's, that's a soup you have to eat yourself. <laughs> and I, as he was a very good friend, he thought about my story. And when I started shooting, I got a big envelope from him and he wrote a letter saying, I thought about everything you told me and I, and these angel characters remain in my mind and I figured if you're still doing this, you could use some dialogue between the two of them and eventually you told me one of them was falling in love. Well, eventually he's going to meet that woman. So I wrote a dialogue for that scene and I, and you remember I, I suggested a character like the angel of storytelling. I wrote some stuff for this old man and, and altogether he... He had a dozen scenes, not knowing if they would fit in, but it wasn't scenes, it was sickly dialogues. Yeah. So I was so happy and I incorporated Peter's ten dialogues into the story and and otherwise I wrote it every day from from every night I was writing with Claire Denis. We were standing in front of the wall that had all the locations I liked and mm -hmm. we said, Well, we're we gonna shoot tomorrow and what? <laughs> And she's the one, I think you've said, who suggested Peter Falk, right? Yeah, Peter Falk. Eventually, when one night we, we stood again in front of our wall and I, we had just watched our rushes and I was a little bit in a, in a sour mood because I realized everything we shot was pretty serious. And these angels were kind of serious character. And I said, nobody's going to watch this movie because it's not really funny and there's no... We need it, and we know, need another element, something funny, some other guy who's going to blow some fresh wind into this. And what about if we had an ex-angel, somebody who lived through what Bruno Ganz is yeah. Wouldn't that be funny? And she said, "Yes, that would be funny. <laughs> an ex-angel would be great." So one thing came to another, and eventually, eventually, by deduction. Yeah, we arrived at Peter Falk as somebody everybody would believe in yeah. <laughs> as an ex-angel and, right. and as I didn't have a number for Peter Falk I finally called John Cassavetes who had met a year before at the Rotterdam Film Festival and he'd given me his number and I remember John and Peter Falk had made three movies sure. and I called John to tell him my dilemma and he didn't even want to talk about it he said oh, I just as well give you Peter's number just tell him your story <laughs> that's great and there I was in the middle of the night calling Peter Falk, explaining to him that I was already shooting a movie without a script and that there was an unscripted character of an ex-angel that I wanted him to play possibly the next week. <laughs> he said, sign me up. He laughed his heart off and eventually said one of the most beautiful things any actor said to me. He said, I'll come. I did my best work this way. And he was referring to the films he did with Casavetes where everything was improvised. And his part was improvised. The two of us, when he arrived the next weekend, we had one night to, to write a number of scenes together or at least lay them out and he was all into it. And he became such a lovely element in the film and he enjoyed himself enormously and, and loved Berlin and always ran off the set when he wasn't shooting and we had to find him. <laughs> at one point even call the police. We couldn't find him anymore. We found him in some pizzeria. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Telling tall stories. <laughs> now, in an interesting way, obviously, Wings of Desire is a historical document as well as a entertaining film because whatever, two years later, that Germany no longer existed. And I, I just wonder, um, you know, people now read into things. They Everybody has an idea of what you were trying to do. But one of the things that I, going back and reading reviews at the time, they're saying this was vendors plea for reunification and all of this stuff was that even on your mind or was that just something that happened it was all invented yeah afterwards we yeah. we didn't think in our lifetimes we see the wall come down we crossed it the actors went through it we shot clandestinely a number of shots in the east 
without anybody knowing and without actors. But we never thought it would happen. But then again, there was this big desire, and the title of the film in German, The Himmel über Berlin, is The Big Sky Over Berlin. It was a unified city, the film suggested, so to speak. Yeah. And it then became that. And now the film is quite a unique document of a Berlin that does not exist anymore. Yeah. So what I hope I can do as the um, last thing before we talk about your incredible year of 2023 is just briefly mention some of these amazing documentaries that you began making. And, and if you can just share a, a memory or two about how you got started on them. Obviously, I think, I believe your first one, first documentary goes way back, the one with Nicholas Ray, right? But they really started getting acclaim starting with Buena Vista Social Club. That's 1999, Cuban jazz musicians. Was Were you a fan of jazz, Cuba, Cuban jazz? I mean, how did just the, the origin story of that one, if you wouldn't mind? I loved Cuban music, but I'd never been there in my life. And I was definitely a fan of Ray Kuda. And when Ryan and I were working again on another movie, End of Violence, Ray was doing the score again, and that was in the late... 90s and Rai was absent-minded and really dreamy and looked out of the window I said Rai come on we're making a score here where are you he said I'm still in Havana I said what's in Havana I had no idea he said I just come back I recorded some stuff and it's the best thing I've done in my life and I said Rai let me listen to it yeah I said I can't I just have a tape and it's a audio cassette it's not even mixed I said Rai please let me listen I'm not, not going to give it to anybody else And he gave it to me and said, you give it back to me tomorrow. And in my car, I still had a cassette player. I didn't have one at home, so I had to listen to it in the car. And it, I spent hours in the car and listened to it all over again. It, it was it was the first album, basically. It was unmixed, but it didn't matter. Yeah. And I listened for hours. And the next morning, I gave it back to Ryan and said, wow, I understand that you say this is the best thing you've done in your life. This is... Fabulous! Who are these kids you found there? And he had a big laugh because I didn't know anything about it. I said, they are not exactly kids. <laughs> The average age is 80. <laughs> and I said, no, I don't believe it. He said, well, come with me. Next time I go, and I have to go again, we have to finish, and we're going to do the second album. The first one wasn't out yet. We're going to do the second, and come with me. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll come with you. And didn't think about it much until he called me two months later and said, we're leaving next week. He said, you're leaving where? Well, to Havana. <laughs> you're coming, right? <laughs> and I had four days to get a crew and get a little amount of money to at least be able to travel there with a camera and a cameraman, a sound engineer, and my wife. The four of us went there. And then we started shooting on the day of arrival and... It became a huge adventure. We thought it was the movie that we were making was just Havana. And then I went home and edited. And four weeks later, Rice said, they're making a concert, believe it or not. They're playing all in Amsterdam. And they had never played together. Yeah, It was just studio musicians. Rye had put them together. And then this concert happened. And we, went, we flew to Amsterdam and had to shoot the concert. And now I had more material than I needed. Right. And then... Again, I went home and started editing, and now at the concert and Havana. And then another four weeks later, Ray called, and now they're going to play at Carnegie Hall. <laughs> I said, you're kidding. And he said, you have to come, you understand? I said, of course I have to <laughs> and, the, it, and at the end of the concert, I realized they were English. In, in a few months, they had turned from unknown musicians in the streets of Havana to the Beatles. That was great. Well, the next one, Pina 2011, is the beginning of you documenting both dance, but also 3D, which you've become the biggest. Forget about James Cameron. You are the you are the greatest advocate of 3D, I think. And I wonder just, again, how that, how that happened. Well, I can't think James Cameron enough because when I made Pina, it was in prototype equipment and everybody laughed at me saying, you're never even going to get to show it. And then... While we were editing the movie, Avatar came out and movies equipped themselves. And I really thanked the man because all of a sudden, my 3D film was not an obsolete idiot thing. It was cool. Yes, yes. Even if we didn't have great equipment, I had prototype cameras and it was native 
shooting and I kept doing this for this is now Ansem that is uh, that is did not come out in Cannes is my ninth film in 3D. Amazing. Not all of them feature things, but I shot altogether nine projects. Yeah. And I think, I wonder if anybody shot more. I don't think so. That's incredible. Now, Salt of the Earth is the third of the three documentaries I just have to prompt you about. because, And also the third of the three that got nominated for an Oscar, which is quite an amazing thing. But with Salt of the Earth, what, I, what I'm just noticing is with Buena Vista Social Club, it's music. With... Pina, it's dance. With Salt of the Earth, it's photography. In a way, many of the things that you were, and, and of course with Anselm, which is this year, sculpture and other things, it seems like through documentary, you've been able to do the things that you were considering doing before you became a filmmaker, right? It's like you got to do them after all. Totally right. And I got to explore what it meant to be a musician or a choreographer or a photographer or a painter. And as I figured, the last great adventure on the planet is not really traveling anymore. It's the human mind. And I got to know these incredible people who, on their own, in their own realm, did something unbelievably emotional and, and endearing and... I got to know them, become friends with them, and really explored how they worked. How does a choreographer work? And before I made a film on Yoshi Yamamoto, how does a fashion designer work? And now how does a painter work? And it became very satisfying. And I more and more love the documentary field because it had this unbelievable freedom. And in documentaries, I can still shoot in chronological order in my own Realm, mm-hmm. because fiction today is so formulated and you cannot even dream of making a starting a fiction film without a script like I did several times and I proved that I could do it but now even I could not pull it off anymore I would have to have an elaborate script before I get funding and so documentaries allowed me to continue working the way I love yeah so this brings us to the home stretch here with a movie that everyone was talking about when I was at Cannes in May, then everyone was talking about last week when I was at Telluride. Um, and this week, congratulations, has been chosen by Japan to represent it at the Oscars, which you've represented Germany before, but I don't know if you ever imagined you would have a film representing Japan, and that is Perfect Days. So I guess to begin with, can we just talk about your interest in affinity for Japan goes back at least to Tokyo Ga in 1985 when or I think you shot it earlier than that but this is a documentary that you made with Ed Lackman that was you know I get, kind of exploring Japan way back then so what's at the root of your interest in Japan and how did that lead to a story about a, a toilet cleaner in Tokyo well the root is really mid 70s New Yorker films who distributed some of my films, and Dan Talbot, because Dan Talbot had acquired three movies by a Japanese director who I'd never heard of, because even at the Cinematheque in Paris, they didn't have a single print of Yasujiro Ozu. And Dan told me, I guess you would like this. You have to just check it out. He's playing at at my theater. So one afternoon, I went to see Tokyo Story, I stayed through all three screenings, wept like a baby, realized this was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And after all these years and after already making a handful of movies myself, I finally had discovered my master and was so curious to see more that I then traveled to Japan in 77. And at the Japanese Cinematheque, they showed me more films. I had to see them on an editing table. They weren't subtitled. It was just all in Japanese, but I seemed to understand it. And I saw... 20 or 25 more films by him and from then it was decided this was my favorite chapter in the history of cinema and I was really keen to find out more and in 83 with Ed Lachman we shot a film on the traces of Yasujiro Ozu in the streets of Tokyo and actually found his favorite actor who had been in all of his movies except for one when he was sick found his cameraman and interviewed them and sort of made a film on the traces of Ozu and that came to led to a huge infatuation with Cap, with Japan. I made another film there on 
a Japanese designer and uh, shot part of Until the End of the World there, again with Ryu Shishu, the great actor who had been in all of his of Ozu's films. And eventually, in the last few years, I and I traveled more than a hundred times to Japan and knew it really well. And, and then over the last few years, you couldn't go there. And I realized Christmas or New Year's 22, I told my wife, it's been five years since we since I didn't go and I really am homesick. And then miraculously, I got a letter inviting me to come to Tokyo. It was not for a movie. It was to for an architectural project to visit these sites of 15 little unique buildings made each of them by different great Japanese architect and I knew some of them I was friends with Tadao under friends and I was asked to come and just see if I'd be inspired and maybe for photos photo book or maybe for a documentary and and it was attached with a working visa because you still couldn't go to Tokyo mm -hmm. so it was too good to be true and I had to say I'm sorry I'm making a movie still and but in May, my editor is taking a week off. I could come in May to just look at these places. And they said, well, come, it's no strings attached. If, you don't have, if it doesn't inspire you, you just go home and we remain friends and you don't have to deliver anything. It was a very open invitation. And in May, I spent a week in Tokyo and loved these places, these little toilets, and loved to see the Japanese culture and the Japanese people come out of their lockdown, the longest lockdown of any city in the world, almost two years, and come out so joyfully and come out differently than in my world in Berlin. When the lockdown happened, was over in Berlin, the little park where I lived was a, the next, a week later, it was a junk pile. It was destroyed. And many other parks, and I saw the same thing happen in Paris or London. A huge victim of the pandemic was a sense of the common good, and the Japanese people showed me the opposite. They showed me they had parties, they were exuberant, and in the evening you would see them pick up cigarette butts and every little piece of paper, and of course all the bottles and the places were as clean as before, and I was very impressed. And I told the people who had invited me to look at these toilets in the parks, I said, I feel I wouldn't do these, do you a good service by making a documentary on these toilets because I was in that situation with Wings of Desire and I wanted to make a film about a place, but then I realized fiction was the best place to show the place and to preserve the place. So here I'd love to make a film on this utopian common sense of the, co of social sense of the common good and I'd like to shoot in Tokyo, and I'd love to have these toilets as background, but not as the thing itself, right. not about them. And what do you think about a film about a character who's a caretaker of this? And I didn't hesitate long. I mean, I just talked myself out of a good job, but <laughs> they loved the idea and said, well, yeah, then we have to write a script, and can you possibly do it still this year? And I said, yes, Ansem will be edited in. September and it goes into post-production. 3D takes a long time post-production. I'll have a month off. I'll come. And Takuma-san, who had invited me in the first place, who was a writer, came with me to Berlin and in three weeks we developed a script and in October I went and we shot. And I had met Koji already that first week in May, Koji Akushum, because when I said I'd rather make a film on a character and have a story and a caretaker, I also said it would be great to know for whom we write this. And Takumas had a big smile and he said, I know who you need. Give me a minute. And the next morning he presented me Koji and said, Koji knows we have this project. He knows you directed. He's unconditionally part of the project. Even if you haven't written yet, he's in. Consider it done. It was a good decision by everyone because he then wins best actor at Cannes. Not a bad... But I know he was the best possible man for that. Yeah. I, I mean, I couldn't believe my luck because I'd seen him in Shall We Dance and Bubble and many other films, and I adored him. I saw Shall We Dance three times. I introduced it to my whole family because I thought this was mighty acting and so beautiful and emotional. And anyway, out of a sudden, he stood there and said, I'm in. If you do this, I do this. And 17 days of work, and now you have a film that Japan is proud of enough to have it represent them well he's so loved in japan and and when he came back from Cannes, the 
there were a couple of hundred people at the airport waiting for him, cheering him, and he did a press conference on arrival. <laughs> He's such a fantastic, lovely human being and such an enormous actor, and I never worked with anybody like this. And because he got to know the character of Hirayama that he plays, named after a character in Tokyo Story, yes, yes. he became that character so much that in the course of the 15 days we had a oh, shooting... 15, sorry. Just... 15 days that after the first week of shooting it more and more became a documentary on a fictional character amazing which is perfect for you perfect way to end this conversation because you have really your documentaries feel like fiction films and your fiction films feel like documentaries yeah you go that's me in a nutshell <laughs> well thank you so much for your time and thanks, so Scott. many great films it's an honor to speak with you thanks a lot Scott. Thanks. we did it we did it <laughs> Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in.